I gargled too much water. Oh, my God. <laughs> Is this a 2018 LA Meekly? It's not 2018 yet. It will be. It will be. It will be. It will be. <laughs> the only things certain in this world are death and it will be. <laughs> you want to just launch into hellos? Yeah, ready? Hi! Hello <laughs> <laughs> to everybody. Hello Christmas. Hello Hanukkah. That's what happens when you try to say everything at once. <laughs> the whole introduction we're about to give is compressed into one word that doesn't exist. <laughs> it will. It, it will be. It will be. <laughs> if there's one thing that's certain in this world, there's death and hello. Happy December, everybody. Welcome to the end of the year. Welcome to the denouement of 2017. I don't know what that means. Is that a food? (laughs) Is that a plate? It's something I ate that we talked about in our Thanksgiving episode that I was thankful for. (laughs) So we're here to introduce another live episode, our second show at the Comedy Central stage at the Mm -hmm. Hudson Theater. It was a great show. It was. It was very good. It's our annual haunted episode. So that's what you're about to hear. So we just wanted to give a little introduction to that. It was a really fun show. We're really glad and happy everybody could come out to it and also allow us to do that. Yeah. We have some good haunted, creepy stories for you. And the curse of our haunted episodes kind of continued when we were frantically preparing for it day of and my printer jammed and ate all of the papers that we were trying to print out and we barely got it all printed out with the last piece of paper I had. Kind of my fault because they were all water damaged pieces of paper, I realized. Um, I I know you, you don't want to buy new paper. It's like, this one's blank. It's water. It came from a tree. <laughs> Trees like water. So I water my paper. That's <laughs> <laughs> you get two pieces of paper or mildew. Uh, yeah, it was really Which fun. I turned into blankets. <laughs> it was nice sort of seeing everyone's silhouette yeah. from the stage area. That it was, was really nice cool. seeing everybody's corona in my eyes <laughs> looking into those bright lights. We have some visual stuff. Well, uh, yeah. First off, our intro is a video one yet again. So mm-hmm. we're going to have that uh, Supplemental links. Yeah. Supplemental links that you can follow. If you want. Okay. Don't if you give them want. the option. If if you're feeling it, you're like, boy, I miss those intros those guys don't need to do, then it's there for you. We need to do them. If there's Tradition. one thing that's certain in this world, there's death and our interests, <laughs> which are a form of death. <laughs> a death of class. Death perception. <laughs> I don't know. Stop. Yeah, I can't. <laughs> I don't know how. So that's one of the audiovisual things. The other one that we're just going to keep in here, it's because it's one of our stories. We did a, a man on the street sort of thing of spirits and hauntings on Hollywood Boulevard. Yeah. So that video will also be up online for you to watch, but you can hear the audio in this episode should you choose to do yes. so. It'll still come through. You just can't see all of my wacky antics. I know all those, those faces you made. Yeah. Yeah. I did this one classic and then that one you're like a regular lawn chain i'm not done with it yeah <laughs> spoiler <laughs> <laughs> damn it i did it again i'm the man of uh two faces harvey Dent. <laughs> we also at the end of the episode again just like last time our friends chris crittenden and cindy arvina did uh, lobby music lobby lobby pick songs and they did art labo style introductions for them art uh LeBeau. nobody jumped on that you're being an art laboob right nah. now we love them so much and people i feel didn't appreciate them or didn't get to hear them enough so we're going to put them and 30 seconds of each song yeah. because that's how we feel we can't get sued yeah come at after the end it. Of, yeah. come at us <laughs> yeah come at us Whoa, give us 30 seconds of a lawsuit <laughs> come on yeah they did a fantastic job i'll we're happy with it yeah as always as always uh so yeah we're gonna have that at the end of the episode so stick around for that again we we just want to thank everyone who made this happen mm-hmm. and helped out with it paul stein for setting this whole thing up at the comedy central stage big thanks to him uh, all the crew that worked that day was super oh, yeah. helpful ran yeah. everything with us a million times yes absolutely yeah. all those pumpkins that were on stage thank you so much <laughs> all of those uh, electric candles on stage thank you, thank so, you much. so much the people who are in our intro oh, uh, uh, melissa johnson mm-hmm. your brother nikki nick your mom 
Nadav helping out so yeah. much. Nadav for being Nadav Fleischer. Nadav, yeah, no, Nadav. They know. <laughs> they know who. Nadav Fleischer for being part of the show that mm-hmm. you'll hear, and uh, Brian Cox for being in our Hollywood video, as well as <laughs> Alberto's and there. Alberto Sistos. We say it at the end of the episode, but here, yeah, hear it again, again, because they love to hear their names. Yeah, and you know what? I like to say them. Vain people. <laughs> this the intro might be about you. I bet you think this song is about you. Well, it is. <laughs> and we're talking to uh, Dave Coulier or whoever that song is actually about. <laughs> <laughs> what? Which of those songs? There's. Uh, they announced who You're So Vain was about. I but then there know. was another song from like the 90s that they finally announced that it was about Dave Coulier. I gotta look that up while you're talking. Other than that, we just want to reemphasize that we have a Patreon yes. going now. So, hey, be one of our Patreon saints. Trademark. That's what we call them. Uh, okay. We're gearing up to roll out some benefits, you know, yeah. $1, $5, Create those tiers. Yeah, for the on. tiers. But for now, you can just donate whatever you want. Even if you want to donate a one-time thing, you can do it. And then once your account is drained at the first of the month, you can just cancel it. Yeah. So yeah, that helps out a lot. It keeps us going, helps us get better equipment, pay for websites, yeah. hosting the podcast and all that sort of thing. So we really appreciate it if you wanted to do that. Yes. We have a few patrons already. And since they're the first ones, the trailblazers, we want to thank them by name, by address. <laughs> <laughs> by credit card information. Oscar Prado, of course. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. I was talking. Oh, boy. Um, we're done with him. <laughs> he got his minute. <laughs> Bryce Furlong, thank you so much. And Emilio Uranga, three. <laughs> long time fan. Yeah, long time fan. Thank you, all three of you, so much. You are the guinea pigs. You are the ones whose accounts are going to be hacked. And Patient zero. <laughs> Patient zero, zero, and zero. Oh, we really appreciate it. We are spending your money on so many illicit things. I know we said we're going to use it for the podcast. Podcast, but my god the things we've bought i use black tar heroin for the podcast it's research <laughs> you told me to research it i'm researching thank you very much for that yeah we're, we're trying to push that we're trying to push more merch which the patreon's going to help yeah. with so hopefully it did you find out who the song is about yeah oh uh you want to know you want to know from you, Alanis you, you ought, yeah that's about dave coulier that's <laughs> so stupid you know your sylvain is about uncle jesse <laughs> <laughs> hey wasn't he <laughs> everywhere he looks it's dave coulier <laughs> we're also a, a new big announcement it was kind of always there but now we're revamping our YouTube channel so that it we're slowly by the time this comes out not all the episodes will be up there but we'll have the video for this episode you're about to hear and all the rest are slowly coming out so subscribe to us if that's how you like to listen to it on YouTube you can now do that other than that our regular stuff iTunes Mm -hmm. leave us a review five stars you could follow us on Twitter at LA Meekly Instagram LA LA underscore underscore Meekly Meekly. where we post every day Facebook like us on that yeah our Tumblr page la.meekly at gmail.com no. Yeah. No, that's it. Our no, Tumblr is, is a our, Gmail it's account. Actually, <laughs> it's a lot of programming and HTML language yeah. to mark up. But, it, you know. We had to take a lot of classes to figure out how to code that, but <laughs> our Tumblr is a Gmail. Oh, look at the coding of that picture. Um, Ooh, spelled out with zeros. And the H is a uh, one and a broken zero. <laughs> a dash that doesn't Which belong there. Now nothing's loading. <laughs> and we are broken zeros. <laughs> Send us uh, email, la.meekly at gmail.com. Suggestions, yes. comments, hate mail, anything like that. If you uh, want to be a field trip episode, subject. Which uh, there are more coming out pretty soon. Yeah, if you work at an historic or interesting place in LA or you know someone who does, put us in contact. We'll come interview you. It'll be grand. Yeah, everyone likes that. Thank you so much for uh, listening to us throughout 2017. It was a big year. We had two... Th- 2017's not over. Oh, wait, yeah. This is the last episode of 2017. <laughs> well, we should be thanking every them in 2018. Year, every year I give you a calendar. <laughs> every year. Yeah, it's an advent calendar. And I keep <laughs> telling you, I don't subscribe to this. I, I will eat your <laughs> I chocolate, don't... but I won't subscribe to this. 31 days? <laughs> 
in a month? No, I don't subscribe to I this. I only get one chocolate a day? You know, uh, chocolate that for sins, right? <laughs> this is the guanduya of Christ. This is the, <laughs> this is the ganache of Christ. We had our, our biggest live shows, or only live shows all this year. And yeah, stuff. isn't that weird? Yeah. I, all of our live shows were in this past this, year. We had a pretty year. good year. Yeah, we had a good year. It was a very good year. <laughs> you know, our numbers grew and grew. We have more fans. And then shrunk. <laughs> and then grew and, and also shrunk. Yeah, it has been a good year. Hopefully next year will be even more shows, yeah. even better. Uh, more stress, you know. Good 2017. Yeah. We hope you have a, a creepy Christmas and a haunted Hanukkah and a nutty New Year. Nutty. Have a good end of the year. We hope you got a bunch of uh, little presents under your little trees presents. and and uh, presents for every candle of Hanukkah, which are more candles. Each night you get a new candle so you can celebrate the next day. What didn't burn out? Like the oil? Yeah, the oil. Okay. Okay. I'm just asking questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we'll see you in 2018. Well, the next voice you're going to hear is us again. So enjoy the show. Goodbye. Hello, everybody. Where are you? I'm here. I Welcome to L.A. Meekly. Live, Devil's Night. Yes. First off, thank you to whoever uh, heard the spooky goblin song from the Haunted Mansion death certificate joke and laughed so hard. <laughs> that was a real treat. Uh, if you don't know what Devil's Night is, it's the night before Halloween in Detroit where a bunch of thugs try to burn the city down. And I don't know if you've seen Detroit, but I think it worked. <laughs> Not quite sure. Candy wrappers everywhere. <laughs> Tomorrow's Halloween. Halloween is my absolute favorite holiday, and with it comes my favorite holiday tradition, uh, watching couples in costumes getting into arguments at parties. <laughs> I love it. There's nothing funnier than me than watching two people who love each other say the meanest things to each other, and they're both dressed like chickens. It's so funny. It's like watching a puppet show, but in a show, one of the puppets has to walk home. Why did the chicken cross the road? Because he got dumped. That, that's why he had to get away quick. Yeah, Halloween's the only holiday where you can watch like a copyright protected character fight like an occupation. Like it's Woody from Story, Toy Story is fighting the mailman about a beer run. Like it's really funny. I love Halloween. Um, when I was a kid, my favorite thing was uh, going trick-or-treating and getting candy. Now my favorite thing is going trick-or-treating and looking into other people's homes. I love it. So uh, who here is afraid of God? <laughs> Yes. Yeah, that's him. Everybody, open up your Bibles. No. Here we go. But who here is afraid of the devil? No, no, no. You should not be afraid of the devil. Nothing I've ever heard about the devil is scary at all. He loves making deals, and he plays the fiddle. <laughs> Those are his things. The fiddle. An instrument named after what you say when you lose interest in that instrument. And bartering. That, that doesn't sound like evil incarnate. That sounds like a hillbilly in debt. That's not frightening. I'm not even sure if he's convinced if he's scary or not. Like, he can't even settle on what his image is. He's sometimes part goat, but get this. Sometimes he's not. Sometimes he isn't part goat at all. Isn't that frightening? Like, he's a good idea, poor execution. He's the L.A. Meekly of the Bible, I think. <laughs> Parents warn their kids not to listen to him. And nobody leaves him reviews. <laughs> That's how it works. Trip. <laughs> Everyone leave reviews right now. <laughs> the devil's in the detail. Like, that's not a threat. The devil's in the details. That's the tagline for the movie about how calculus was invented. <laughs> it isn't scary. I'm afraid of real things, like eye contact. 
and sharks living in my pool. That's the kind of thing that keeps me up at night. I think I'd be more afraid of the devil if he wasn't so organized, though. Like, because the way he collects souls is he makes you sign your name in a book that he carries around with him everywhere, which means that the devil is collecting souls the same way Greenpeace is collecting funding. <laughs> I guess that's scary if you're, like, afraid of bureaucrats, sure. Real scary. There's so many other demons that are so much scarier because they have all the evilness, but none of that responsibility. Like, there's demons in Japan where if you go in the wrong river, they'll suck your soul out of your butt. That scares me. Because <laughs> nobody's signing up for that. Nobody will do that. Those demons just see what they want, and they suck it out of your butt. <laughs> That's a mindset that frightens me. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he wasn't a dork. <laughs> Good job. So who wants to watch us sit down awkwardly now? Here we go. <laughs> You got your arms together? Yeah. Okay, good. They're all accounted for. <laughs> all right, I'm going to start us off tonight. When I was trying to find folk tales of Los Angeles, I came across a story that was transcribed in 1966 by a woman named Bess Lomax, who was going around the valley collecting folk tales from everybody. So the story is of Myra Hess, the white vampire of Malibu, and it is ridiculous. From her tales I read, there's only three. Before Myra appears, there's a flash of white light that apparently blinds you, and then Myra attacks. She's been described as a shriveled and paled old woman with hair down to her feet wearing all white. So basically, it's the girl from The Ring. Like, <laughs> like The Ring Goes West. <laughs> ring go. <laughs> Stop that. <laughs> One night, some Boy Scouts were all camping by the beach, and it was pretty late at night. One of the boys couldn't sleep, so he started, decided to wander by the beach. And a fellow scout warned him about the white vampire, and he shrugged it off. Uh, that Boy Scout was found dead in the morning with bite marks on his neck. Another incident, two lovers were exploring caves in the Malibu Mountains when they got caved in. Surprise. <laughs> they got Malibu'd in. Ah, uh, when, they were found, when they were found, they discovered bite marks on their necks. Two old, other older guys were found in an abandoned uh, beach club in Malibu after having encountered the white vampire of Malibu. One was all white and shriveled up, his foot stuck in the floorboards, and the other had its back broken over the window seal. Bite marks are not mentioned, but they're implied. <laughs> Apparently what repels Myra Hess is the color red, although, come on, do you not know what color the blood is? Uh, <laughs> also, it said if you wear a towel around your neck, you'll be safe. Uh, in this story, Girl Scouts were known to go camping in Malibu, sleeping with towels around their neck, which is why women from that generation have neck problems. Uh, there is no mention of Myra Hess on the internet, but we did manage to find one photo. Uh, go ahead and cue that. Here she is. White vampire of Malibu. Don't let, don't let Myra catch you on the PCH. She'll racial slitter you. <laughs> All right, you I told Greg when we was doing that picture to draw like a Dracula symbol on his thing, and he drew a Jewish star. <laughs> <laughs> Is this it? <laughs> yeah. Is this what Dracula's about? Oh, that's supposed to be Iron Cross, by the way. Okay. <laughs> Uh, it disappeared. Um, in 2000, okay, here's another story. 2008, there was a really horrible train crash in Chatsworth when the conductor of Amtrak was texting while operating the train and he missed one of the stoplights he was supposed to break for and it collided with a freight train. 135 people were injured in this accident and 25 people died. After the incident, one passenger's family began receiving phone calls for 11 hours after the accident. And when they answered, they only heard static. It gave the family hope that the loved one had survived the crash, but he didn't. When they tried to call his phone back, all they got was a voicemail. 35 calls were made to different family members from this phone. When his body was found 12 hours later, the phone calls had stopped. Very unprofessional. Hello? 
yeah, this is pretty offensive. I'm going to stop now. Okay. <laughs> uh, so for this next one, we went out onto the streets of Hollywood Boulevard to, uh, you know, there's a lot of strange stuff that happens there, so we, we filmed a little video of it. I need to explain, though, looking back on the footage, I look horrible in this footage. Like, I look like I just got out of an opium den and then ran a half marathon <laughs> and then filmed this. So aside from that, I hope you enjoy it. If we, could, uh, if we could play clip two now. We're here on Hollywood Boulevard, home of glitz, glamour, and one can assume gonorrhea. But there's a fourth G that this street is just as known for. No, it's not George Clooney. <laughs> It's ghosts. The 1.6-mile stretch of Hollywood Boulevard from Vine to Sierra Bonita has the highest concentration of ghost sightings in L.A. County. And that's not even counting the side streets. Tonight, we're going on a tour to find the scariest things on this street. Scarier than trying to make a left on Highland. Scarier even than the inevitable puddles of vomit we're destined to encounter. Let's go hunt some gonorrhea. Ghosts. Here we are at the northwest corner of Hollywood and Vine. This intersection is synonymous with celebrity thanks to it being the location of one of the most popular of the Brown Derby restaurants. Today, this intersection is synonymous with me being afraid of getting mugged right now. This intersection has also been the location of too many paranormal sightings to count, but if I had to put a number on it, it would be the number two. The first was that of early Hollywood heartthrob Mr. Lon Chaney Sr. Early on in his career, the original Universal movie monster would sit at an ornate bench on this very corner every day waiting for the bus to take him to the studios to look for work before he hit it big with his role as the Hunchback of Notre Dame, the Phantom of the Opera, and Sebulba from Star Wars Episode I, The Phantom Menace. He became known as the Man of a Thousand Faces, all of which died in 1930. But for years after, his ghost was seen sitting on that bench. It was seen so frequently that his spot there was usually left empty for it. His ghost was even referenced in a legal battle between the man who had placed the decorative bench there and the city that had removed it for a bench that advertised cigars, saying, quote, no self-respecting ghost would sit on such a bench. I want my bench back. A new bench was put here, but Cheney's ghost never came back. But Cheney wasn't the only universal cash cow to love this intersection. Dracula himself, Bela Lugosi, loved this area almost as much as he loved the morphine that eventually killed him in 1956. <laughs> His funeral procession was requested not to go down Hollywood Boulevard so as not to depress shoppers, but they still had to cross it to get to the graveyard. But as they were crossing the street, the driver lost control of the hearse, veered left going down Hollywood, and couldn't regain control of the vehicle until they came through this intersection here. The driver had no explanation for what happened. Lagosi couldn't be reached for comment. Now I'm here with a local to find out whether or not he has ever seen anything out of the ordinary at this location. No. Okay then. You may be homely in your neighborhood. Chinese Theater birthplace of the human footprint. This has been the ceremonial heart of Hollywood since it's opened in 1927 and is arguably the most famous movie theater in the world. Tickets currently cost $21.75 for an adult, $19 for kids, but for a ghost, 
just one soul. People have reported strange sounds, the feeling of being watched, and the violent shaking that the stage curtain, most likely caused by a former employee named Fritz, who allegedly hanged himself behind the movie screen, or a little girl named Annabelle, who I wish I could tell you more about, but whenever I Google Chinese theater and Annabelle, all I get are movie times for a movie no longer in theaters. But the most interesting ghost actually wanders around outside where we're now standing. I know this sounds like a setup for a joke about the career of Johnny Depp involving a Johnny Depp look-alike, but that joke was out of the budget. The story is of the you'll soon find to be aptly named Mr. Victor Killian, an actor best known for his role in the TV show Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman as the Fernwood Flasher. And for his unintentional role as guy who accidentally lost an eye during a staged knife fight on set with John Wayne. His final role was in an episode of All in the Family he filmed just before his death. Killian loved to wander Hollywood Boulevard, but one night in March 1979, he met a guy at a bar and invited him back to his place nearby for a drink. The next morning, Killian was found beaten to death in his home. It was suspected to be a burglary gone wrong, but his killer was never found. Mr. Killian is still reportedly seen wandering this courtyard looking for his killer. A strange twist in the story is that just one week before he was killed, another actor named Charles Wagenheim was killed in a similar way. The detective on the case, Steve Hodell, said there was no connection between the two murders before later going on to claim that his dad was both the Black Dahlia killer and the Zodiac killer. The detail he overlooked was that Wagenheim lived just two miles, almost exactly west of Killian, was killed on Killian's birthday, and when Killian's All in the Family episode came out just a a little bit after both men died, it turned out Wagenheim had guest acted in that same episode, leading police towards only one suspect, Archie Bunker. <laughs> now I'm going to ask a sightseeing tourist if he has spotted Mr. Killian yet. Excuse me, sir. Have you ever... Oh, no, I, it's you. I... No. No ghost here. I didn't... You... I said no. On to the next stop. <laughs> now The Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel, named after President Hollywood Roosevelt, opened May 15, 1927 at a cost that in today's dollars would be over $35 million, which makes it the second most prestigious place on the street behind the Hooters. It has 300 rooms, a pool hand-painted by David Hockney, a bar, and the Blossom Ballroom, which housed the first two Academy Awards. Pretty much every movie star since that became a thing has either slept or partied here on one of its 12 floors, all of which are haunted. Clark Gable and Carol Lombard haunt the penthouse suite where they had carried out their great love affair. Errol Flynn haunts the room where he carried out his great love affair, the bar. Marilyn Monroe lived here for two years and during her stay requested a large mirror be placed in her room. Since her death, several people have reported seeing a sad blonde woman reflected in that mirror behind them, which in Hollywood is like saying you saw water in the ocean. The room with the most activity is room 928, where the very dead Montgomery Cliff lived for three months. People have reported hearing him reciting his lines in the hall and playing a trumpet. One person even claims to have carried out a conversation with him for 30 minutes. But this hotel isn't just for ghosts of the rich and famous, it's also for ghosts of people who were just rich. There is an anonymous ghost that is sometimes seen swimming in the pool. Another has been seen in room 213, also anonymous because he has no head. 
A piano player in a white suit has been seen in the ballroom nearby a cold spot that some believe to be the portal that this hotel's 30-some ghosts are coming through. The scariest story I heard was of the hotel operator getting a call from the lobby. It was a little girl saying, I'm looking for my daddy. I can't find my daddy. The operator went into the lobby to help her, but nobody was there. He went back to his office and the call came again and the same little girl was asking, did you find my daddy? He said no and to stay put so he could come get her. So he hung up and radioed the security guard to make sure the girl next to the lobby phone didn't leave. The security guard responded saying he was standing next to the lobby phone and there was no little girl anywhere to be seen. This story aligns with others about a five-year-old named Caroline who years earlier had drowned in the hotel pool. And here we are with a guest of the hotel. Could you tell me if you've noticed anything strange during your stay here? Yeah, well, I actually was just nope, going to- Nope, nothing to see here. Just keep on going. Just keep... Will you leave us alone? We're now at the final stop of our tour, the intersection of Hollywood Boulevard and Sierra Bonita Avenue, an intersection known for absolutely nothing, except for the repeated apparitions of Native Americans on horseback, 19th century Mexican banditos, and early California wagons careening through traffic, one time even causing an accident. These apparitions appear out of nowhere and disappear just as quickly. Some believe this might have been the site of some forgotten early California disaster, or that this may have been a former native burial ground, or that the sightings might be coming from the nearby Waddles Park. Wherever they may be coming from, we can be sure. That was an electric candle! Welcome to the Everything is Normal and Existence Ends at Death Tour of Hollywood. Behind me, there is a wall. And that's the end of the tour. See you in hell. Which is where I live. I'm keeping the lantern. Still not a ghost. Alright. I don't care what people say. I look great in that <laughs> I like you had a preface. I like, okay, you guys know how handsome I am, right? <laughs> you might not be used to this. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna get a start on the next one. So my next one isn't necessarily horror themed, although it is horrible. It features an animal that I am absolutely terrified of, and it took place on Halloween night. So be nice. Uh, it's a story I've told on this podcast before because uh, no one praised me enough for doing it the first time. So here we are. Uh, <laughs> So we're going to go back to the Los Angeles in the 1920s, the boom decade, uh, where the population skyrockets. It goes from having 576,000 people in 1920 to 1.2 million people in 1930. By the end of the decade, LA goes from being the 10th biggest city in America to the 5th. This is the decade where we go from being a sleepy little Pueblo town to a major American city. In the midst of Los Angeles becoming a metropolis, there's a story that takes place in a long-gone neighborhood near downtown known as the Macy Street District. Can we cue that photo, please? In between t Twin Towers, the terminal annex of the post office, Union Station, and that Denny's. <laughs> we all know the one, right? The Plague uh, Denny's. The Plague Denny's, yeah. Uh, it was an era for low-income families and day laborers. It was mostly immigrant families, mostly Mexican, but there was also some families who were Chinese, Italian, Russian. There were uh, some houses built there at the turn of the century. They were a little bit run down, but operational. And then there was these shacks that people lived in that were mostly just like boxes and sheet metal. Uh, it was kind of area where a lot of people lived in close proximity. In this area, there was a boarding house at 742 Clara Street. Can we show the picture, please? That's all that exists now is the Clara Street sign and then that small street right there. Where's the Denny's? <laughs> what, what, I want to get uh, egg moons over my hammy. 
That is 742 Clare Street. It was run by the Samorano family, uh, the matriarch being Luciana Samorano. Her good friends and neighbors at 700 Clare Street were a man named Jesus Laqueen, who was a day laborer at the LA Railway, and his 15-year-old daughter, Francisca. Now, at some point before the story starts, Jesus must have come in contact with a rat, most likely a dead rat. Rats in Los Angeles are sadly very plentiful. Uh, we don't know, but it must have happened. So on October 2nd, 1924, Dr. Giles Porter of the City Health Department made a house call to the Laqueen residence where he found both Jesus and Francisca gravely ill. Jesus was complaining about a burning fever, pain in his muscles, and all the way down his spine. He had a large, painful boobo grown on his genitals. Uh, she had Don't similar... laugh, everybody. <laughs> genitals. Uh, <laughs> she had similar symptoms, not the booba, but she had a crippling headache and a sore throat, which Dr. Porter thought were all flu symptoms. Luciana Samorano dropped by to help care for her. The next day, the symptoms only got worse, and she died on her way to the county hospital. It was declared double pneumonia, and Jesus wasn't getting any better. So the queens had symptoms similar to one-third of the Europeans who died in the 14th century, which were also given to them by fleas found on rats. What they had contracted is what we now refer to as the Black Plague, or medically, the bubonic or mnemonic plague. When bitten by a plague flea, the lymph node nearest the bite tries to fight off the infection. Agonizing pustule grows, which can sometimes grow to the size of a goose egg over the wound, which is known as a bubo, hence the bubonic plague. That's what he has growing on his genitals. Yep. Yeah, uh, as- I told you you wouldn't want to laugh at that. <laughs> <laughs> because we have them. <laughs> as the lymph node fails, blood congeals in the extremities, causing limbs to turn black, hence the black plague or the black death. After your limbs turn black, the organs fail. If the bubo bursts under the skin and the fluid enters the bloodstream, it will travel to the lungs where it becomes the pneumonic The non-denominational plague. All are welcome. <laughs> It'll travel to the lungs to become the mnemonic plague, which is the most contagious of all diseases. It's airborne, so it can be spread by breathing, sneezing, or coughing. Uh, if you have the mnemonic plague and cough into the air, the plague mist can hang in the air and be poisonous for up to 20 minutes. If someone is infected and you touch their clothes or their bedding, you will most likely get infected. So, seven days later on October 11th, Jesus Queen dies, and the city health department reports that he died of a venereal disease because of the bubo and the flu. So they had no idea what they were dealing with. Then on the 15th, Luciano Samorano, the boarder who owns the boarding house at 742 Clara Street, who had helped nurse the Queens, develops a high fever. And she's being cared for by a neighbor who's a nurse, Jesse Flores. Over the next 24 hours, her condition worsens and she's taken to general hospital. But by that time, she's already spitting up blood and her fever is burning up. She passes away on the 19th after three days of suffering with plague symptoms, but not before a nurse, Mary Costello, and a priest come in contact with her. When she dies, the coroner declares that it's heart disease and no autopsy is done. Her body is released to her husband, Guadalupe, unaware of the disease she actually had. And the next day, he holds an open casket wake for her friends oh, and family to come and stand over her body. Feel free to kiss. <laughs> one, one last kiss. Her body, which is still infected, continues to pass the plague along to anyone who cared enough to say goodbye oh to her. <laughs> Let that be a lesson to all of you. <laughs> On the 22nd, her husband, Guadalupe, and the neighbor, uh, neighborhood nurse, Jesse Flores, who helped Luciana, they both fall ill and they get high fevers. And two days later, they are taken to general hospital with what doctors think is pneumonia. No one is connecting this yet. And I have no idea why. <laughs> I don't really have the time to go over every person who gets it and how they get it, but it continues in this pattern for eight more days. Someone helps someone who is sick, then they get sick, and then someone comes along and helps them, and then they get sick. So just from Luciana Samorano, this is who she unknowingly spreads the disease to. Her mother, her sister, her uncle, a nurse, the nurse's sister, her four sons, her husband, his mother, brother, five cousins, six boarders, four friends, his priest, nurse, an ambulance driver, and a neighbor. And the the Brady Bunch. And the Brady Bunch. (laughs) Uh, The skipper, Marianne. (laughs) 
and the rest. Yeah, and the rest. And it seemed like no one at General Hospital was catching that all these people were dying of not only similar symptoms, they were all coming from the same block. Okay. <laughs> Obviously, they're not detectives. Finally, on the 29th, a resident physician at General Hospital named Dr. Emil Bogan decides to give a second look at his oddity, so he goes for a ride-along in an ambulance. He's thinking it's bird flu, which swept through the U.S. six years earlier, 1918. So Bogan does a house call, and he sees this older Mexican woman who is sick in bed with high fever, and she's coughing real hard. She's been coughing for two days, and there's some blood in it. This is Luciana's mother-in-law. After he visits her, he's told by a local to also take a look at another person who's sick in the area. High fever, he's coughing up blood, he has body pains. I can only imagine Bogan was like, huh, weird, I just saw someone like that. (laughs) So it's been 25 days since the outbreak first emerged in Los Angeles. It's killed eight people, infected nine more, with the numbers continuing the rise, and it still takes another day for Dr. Bogan and the health department to recognize what they had on their hands. And you know, even if they don't know it's the Black Plague, obviously what is going on is highly contagious, <laughs> and they don't do anything for another day. Finally, the next day, October 31st, 1924, 93 years ago tomorrow, two separate doctors were able to use sputum samples to identify that these people were dying of the Black Plague. And you know what that means? You get quarantined, and you get quarantined, <laughs> and you get quarantined. We all saw that Oprah where everyone got sick, right? The plague is officially identified at about 9 in the morning on Halloween and 12 hours later, 9 p.m., the quarantine starts. First by putting quarantine officers along with 75 police officers outside of select homes to make sure only authorized people can go in and out. It's pretty much most of Clara Street and Carmelita Street, which is where uh, Luciana's mother-in-law lived. But then the county health officer, J.L. Pomeroy, extends the quarantine to include all of the Macy Street area and then some parts of Belvedere Gardens. He asked the fire department to supply a rope so they can cordon off the entire area of the uh, quarantine which held some 2,000 people within it. Also placing armed guards at the front and the back (laughs) of each home. Anybody caught outside of their home when the quarantine started wasn't allowed back in their home. They had to stay at the Baptist Mission Church on Bochette and Avila Streets in the Mission area. If you don't know it, it's right on the other edge of the corner. It's so close. That's how I want Halloween to be. It's just armed guards keeping me inside. (laughs) No (laughs) trick-or-treating. So physicians were visiting infected residents in the quarantine area. You asked me when we covered this previously if they look like... Can we cue the next photo, please? If they look like that, the terrifying 14th century style black... Black plague masks. It elongates your nose, right? Yeah, you it, get yeah because people are scared plague. of birds. That's what the plague is, scared of is birds. That's uh, how they thought it was the bird no. <laughs> They didn't look like that. Can we cue the next photo? Uh, what are you wearing, Gary? <laughs> well, it was a mask made at the spooky old general hospital. It was a mask made of pillow slip with a celluloid eye pieces, a gown fitting closely around the neck, overlapping at the ends of the, the head, the cap, and the rubber gloves. It looks like a Halloween costume made by a mother that doesn't love her children. <laughs> Quarantine guards were paid $5 a day to keep the area secure. Residents were urged to clean their homes inside and out. Health department workers ripped off the siding from homes to fumigate foundations. They burned bedding. They buried garbage. Through the first week of November, the sickness continues to ravage the residents of the Macy Street area. Family members and friends of the Samaranos, boarders at Clara Street House, and several other people were now deathly ill. Quarantine patients awaiting an almost certain death were subject to all sorts of different medical treatments. They were stimulated with caffeine and adrenaline for uppers. How are you feeling, Gary? Good! Morphine and coating for downers. Children were given a mixture of hot water, salt, and lime juice to gargle several times a day, which just feels like busy work. <laughs> like, I don't know what we're doing, just gargle hot water. <laughs> gargle this morphine. <laughs> The nurse who helped Luciana, who was named Mary Costello, was showing signs of improvement after being put in an isolation ward at General Hospital and was giving shots of mercurochrome, which is mercury in salt form. Uh, which is not the official way to beat the plague, but it saved her life. Uh, What ended up doing the trick for everybody was modern antibiotics applied for seven days for the infected. So along with the quarantine came another action to help squash the plague before it got to the rest of the city. Eradication. Erat. 
Occasion. All the rats and squirrels were to be poisoned, trapped, and examined. There was a the squirrels into it. They didn't do anything. They look alike. Yeah. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> there was a bounty on all rats in the city. One dollar per rat to any catcher. Ooh. With Sign that, me up. <laughs> you Give can, me my pipe and I'll be there. You can take a trolley ride. You can get a sarsaparilla. You can get a, a ride on a hot air balloon. You uh, get morphine. <laughs> And uh, when people didn't buy that deal, rat catchers were paid $130 a month to round up and exterminate rats. Oh, First facility to examine rats was on Beauchette and Avila at the Baptist Mission, which is the very same place where they kept people who could not go back home after the quarantine started. Eventually, they started the Ratatorium, their words, <laughs> not mine, uh, which was on 8th Street. All rats killed in the city had to be brought there for examination. All buildings and houses in the, in the area were ordered to be rat-proofed. The city created a special department called the Rodent Extermination Department, R.E.D. Red, to deal with these orders. They think that they found the rat that started it all, Rat Patient Zero, at Macy and Avila in a store. This was supposedly the rat that Jesus Lequeen encountered. In all, more than 110,000 rats were examined in the ratatorium, and there were a total of 12 infected rats, which is pretty cool. <laughs> Uh, the quarantine lasted for 12 days uh, until November 11th when they got a control of the situation and all the ordeal lasted for 28 days from the first string of deaths to the end of the quarantine. There were 32 cases of mnemonic plague and 30 deaths from it. The only two people to survive were Mary Costello, the nurse, and a very young Raul Samarano, who was 40 years old. He was the youngest of uh, Lucia's four sons. The other three had died. To further cleanse the wrath of the Black Plague in Los Angeles, the city started demolishing and burning down some of the houses where people had been infected. No compensation was paid to those people who lived there or survived. After the plague had dissipated, it seemed like it was a good opportunity to recreate the landscape in a manner fit with the emerging metropolis that Los Angeles was becoming with no regard to the working class of Macy Street. Clara Street eventually became Vignes Street, which runs behind Union Station and goes by that Denny's. And now the, <laughs> now the entire area is industrial. Although the Black Plague continues to reemerge in the States, this was the last major outbreak of the disease in the U.S. But let's remember, rats are gross. And if you disagree with me, you're pro-plague, and that makes you a bad person. <laughs> Imagine if L.A. had been responsible for a new black oh, plague. Oh, man, they'd like, never let us forget yeah. it. <laughs> Chicago will be giving us swirlies every day. So you've all heard of JPL, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, but you may not have heard about JP Double Hockey Sticks. Heck Repulsion Laboratory. <laughs> you might not know about this. This story is about the man some refer to as the father of the American space program and others refer to as a creep. Jack Parsons. Could we get photo seven? Thank you. Oh, yeah. That's him. A great looking guy who likes to... I think that's a rat in there and that's the rat's tail. It looks like an like a Acme-style dynamite. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so he was born October 2nd, 1914 in Pasadena as Marvel Whiteside Parsons. His dad was also named Marvel, but he abandoned the family, so his mom wanted to rename the baby something that wouldn't remind her of Marvel, but DC Universe Parsons didn't sound right. <laughs> so she just went with Jack. But, but who needs a dad when you have Jules Verne and sci-fi comics to distract you from the year-round Halloween horror that is growing up with a deadbeat dad? If we could go to the next picture... Those are the sorts of things he was reading. That's the rocket that Wallace and Gromit built. He would, read, he would read stories of things called rockets, which at the time only existed in fiction like this. He would build his own out of cardboard tubes, and he would light fireworks in them with his friend Ed Foreman, who he met in eighth grade, taking part in another favorite hobby of kids like these, being beaten up by something bigger. <laughs> The two went to Pasadena Junior College and Stanford, but neither of them graduated. But in 1937, they went to a lecture at Caltech on rocketry and met a guy named Frank Molina who shared their thoughts on rockets, those thoughts being, wow, 
cool. <laughs> Neato. But rockets were strictly science fiction. Like, if you told your family you wanted to be a rocket scientist, I was like telling them you wanted to be a time traveler or a podcaster. <laughs> but, but Parsons convinced the school to start a rocket program. A professor named Fritz Zwicky was against it, saying that rockets would never work. They countered by pointing out that this guy's name was Fritz Zwicky. <laughs> So they won. The school let them use their labs, but the school soon noticed a pattern in their experiments. These guys would do something, and then it would explode. <laughs> so they were banned from campus and went to a place known as Devil's Gate Dam, named after a rock formation that looks like Satan, and because they were saving the name Heaven's Gate for the 70s, they, they needed <laughs> need that in their back pocket. Their dangerous reputation also got themselves a nickname, the Suicide Squad, if we could go to the next picture. That's them. Joker's even less in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> They're making a spin-off all about Harley Quinn, the scientist. <laughs> this is the coolest scientists ever were and ever will be, right there. Here they tested out uh, Parsons' idea of a liquid propellant that could burn more efficiently and hotter than a powder propellant. So on Halloween, 1936, Parsons tried it out and got a motor running with this for three whole seconds, which was three seconds longer than the previous record they had trying this. Caltech rewarded them by letting them back inside before they spewed liquid all over the lawn, turning it brown, unleashed a gas that rusted everything in the room, and blew a machine through a wall. <laughs> they were promptly sprayed with a squirt bottle and sent back outside without a treat. Uh, and <laughs> In 1938, the U.S. military took an interest in the Suicide Squad, and knowing that some sort of Great War Part Two was coming, they needed a fuel that could launch aircraft off of a short runway like that of a boat or off of a tiny island in the Pacific Ocean halfway to the Philippines. This project was known as JATO, Jet Assisted Takeoff, and the military funded it, making the Suicide Squad, that ragtag group of ragtags... <laughs> That made them the country's first government rocket group. Fritz Zwicky stepped in again and suggested the gang use a type of fuel that they already had at Caltech, make it easier. Parson responded to his suggestion by blowing up all the fuel that the school had. What Parsons did come up with was 457% more powerful than anything else available. available. Uh, available. It, it, I've been drinking gasoline. <laughs> Uh, this made possible the technology that helped win World War II, start the eventual space program, and form Mountain Dew. This was all made possible by him. But there was another side to bad boy rocket man Jack Parsons. In fact, he was more than just a bad boy. He was a downright naughty boy. What? Can we go to the next picture? <laughs> Saucy. <laughs> that was his work uniform. <laughs> Some referred to him as a delightful screwball, which was the most people in the 30s could muster to describe a Satan-worshipping sex magician. <laughs> Parsons believed in three things. That Fritz Zwicky was a dork. <laughs> that for lack of a better term, rocket power was possible. And that magic was real. He believed alternate realities existed scientifically and that science and magic were two sides of the same coin. Rockets could liberate us from the earth, magic could liberate us from reality. Just how rockets were seen as science fiction before he came along, magic could shed its label as fantasy, it just hadn't been proven yet and it was his job to do so. What a job. Could we go to the next picture? No, there it is. <laughs> That's him, and you'll find out where he is right now. He joined the Agape Lodge, which was the local chapter of the Ordo Templi Orientis, the church that practiced 
Thalema, the religion whose belief was do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. That's a lot of THs, and I don't like that. <laughs> this religion was created by the self-proclaimed wickedest man in the world, Alistair Crowley. If we could go, there he is. That's his headshot for... <laughs> He tried modeling. For the sake of time and not glorifying this creep, I'll give you his greatest hits. He referred to himself as the Great Beast 666. He left another secret society after an argument with W.B. Yeats. <laughs> he was Ian Fleming's inspiration for the Bond villain Le Chiffre and was a world-class mountain climber whose team got hit by an avalanche and instead of helping them, made some tea, sat down, and watched them die. <laughs> the ceremonies... <laughs> But yeah, he's cool. <laughs> the ceremonies at the lodge included the Gnostic Mass, which featured people coming out of coffins, breast kissing, sword stroking, wine made of human blood, and the main event, the Cake of Light, which came in two flavors, semen or menstrual blood. <laughs> okay. Word of advice, do not order the side glass of milk with that. There was poetry involved, some written by Parsons himself, and to give us the feel of one of these meetings, we invited a Jack Parsons impersonator we met on Hollywood Boulevard to come and recite his most famous poem, I Hike Don Quixote, I Live on Peyote. And here he is, ready to perform. My pumpkin! I hide Don Quixote. I live on peyote, marijuana, morphine, and cocaine. I never knew sadness, but only a madness that burns at the heart and the brain. I see each charwoman ecstatic, inhuman, angelic, demonic, divine. Each wagon a dragon, each beer mug a flagon that brims with ambrosial wine. <laughs> I went to the city. I found it a pity that the devil was playing at hell. And 10 million mortals had entered hell's portals and thought they were all doing well. <laughs> I said, see dear people on every church steeple, an imp of the devil at play. See ghouls cut their capers in daily newspapers and fiends in the police courts hold sway. The mountains are palaces. Women are chalices meant to be supped and not sold. The desert a banquet hall set for a festival, ripe for the free and the bold. The wind and the sky are ours. Heaven and all its stars, waken and do what you will. Break with this demon's bond, hell-inspired nightmare bond. Magic lies over the hill. <laughs> they said I was crazy. <laughs> Ambiguous, lazy. Disgusting, fantastic, obscene. So I hide for my sagebrush and cactus and cornmush to see if the air was still clean. Oh, I hide Don Quixote. I live on peyote, marijuana, morphine, and cocaine. And may I be twice damned for a bank clerk or storehand if I visit the city again. Keep it going for Jacques Parsons, everybody. You know what they say, write what you know. <laughs> that poem is even stupider when I hear it out loud. <laughs> so 
When Parsons joined this church and wrote that poem, he took the name Freighter, T-O-P-A-N, or Freighter to Pan, and would chant the hymn to Pan before each of his rocket tests. At the lodge was a woman who knew, I, I feel like I'm speaking in poetry now after hearing <laughs> that. At the lodge was a woman who knew Crowley personally in Italy before Mussolini kicked them out for bestiality, and she saw Parsons as the child who shall behold them all, or the chosen one, according to Crowley, and he soon became Crowley's pet project. He considered him the most valued member of the whole order, with no exception, and he made him the West Coast leader of the OTO. In return, Parsons got that new father figure he's been looking for, <laughs> you know, from his cousin, Marvin Crowley. Here he is. But why separate church and home? Why not just buy a mansion on Millionaire's Row in Pasadena, right next to Bush Gardens, put up a portrait signed portrait of Crowley, call it the Parsonage, and have everyone live there. Why not? Right. Bohemians, artists, musicians, atheists, anarchists, or any other exotic types, any mundane soul would be unceremoniously rejected. This motley crew of groups, notorious for not showering, performed their thalemic rituals in the house in between their cocaine orgies. When cops were called, Parsons would answer the door saying, I'm a scientist at Caltech. What could possibly be happening here? <laughs> as the end of a Benny Hill episode played out behind him. That is the weirdest animal house. I know. <laughs> With live animals. Uh, Parsons did all this to find an answer to the most wonderful and terrible of all questions. What is man? His answer, horny. <laughs> Enter the horniest man alive, L. Ron Hubbard, if we could go to the next one. He's getting ready to go. <laughs> Cheap rent and sex magic, you can bet Hubbard would show up eventually. And he charmed Parsons into becoming his magical partner. Parsons said Hubbard was the most thalemic person I have ever met and is in complete accord with our own principles. Praise Zenu, whatever that means. <laughs> However, Crowley started losing interest in Parsons, so to get back in his favor, he did something huge. He had to make a big impact. Something they refer to as the Babylon working, if we could go to the next one. Oh, boy. This is about to happen. The plan, no sneezing. The plan was that <laughs> The plan was that he and Hubbard would summon a red-haired elemental known as the Scarlet Woman in the form of the mother of abominations, the whore of Babylon, with whom Parsons would conceive the moon child who would grow up to be the Antichrist and overthrow civilization. In essence, Parsons decided, like any good nerd with a gift for magic, be it ritualistic or colon the gathering, that he was <laughs> <laughs> that he's going to summon himself a girlfriend. <laughs> Crowley sent Parsons a letter saying, look, all this black magic stuff is 75% nonsense and the rest is plain dirt. Parsons responded by saying, I find your lack of faith disturbing, whatever that means. And he went on with the ritual with Hubbard, which was 11 days of classical music, drawing occult symbols with swords, dripping animal blood onto runes, and going into the desert to masturbate onto magical tablets. <laughs> Basically a precursor to Coachella, and on, <laughs> and on January 18, 1946, Parsons believed it to be complete. Shortly after responding to a magical want ad that they placed in the paper, a red-haired woman named Marjorie Cameron came looking for a room to rent. Parsons informed Crowley, I have my elemental. Planned success. She has red hair and slant green eyes as specified. Crowley, completely over Parsons, wrote to somebody else. Apparently Parsons or somebody is producing a moon child. I get fairly frantic when I contemplate the idiocy of these goats, uh, which he then had sex with. But 
Uh, but that didn't stop Parsons' magical libido. He spent two weeks in bed with Cameron conceiving the moon child while Hubbard chanted and watched and pregnant women jumped through the fire in the backyard. And Parsons, the man who jump-started space exploration, believed that this two-week tantric sexathon involving L. Ron Hubbard was the greatest achievement of his life. <laughs> But many people believe that this Babylon working not only got Elrond all hot and bothered, but also opened up an apocalyptic gateway that is the cause of all the suffering in the world today. And the location of that gateway is believed to be the Devil's Gate Dam, who many consider to be one of the seven portals of hell, if we could go to the next picture. If you can see that devil there, also walking out of the tunnel there. Is the devil and his girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they make a cute couple. So this had been a dreaded area in the days of the Keech, who believed it to be a gateway to the afterlife and best avoided. People hear laughing coming from that tunnel and see burned Bibles littered around. There's been suicides. One guy was biking in Altadena when a wall of water swept him away and he was found four days later pinned to a tree near this area. In 1956, two kids went missing after biking in this area. The search found only their bikes and a jacket. Thirteen years later, a city worker named Mac Ray Edwards confessed to killing them and burying their bodies under a road he paved over the next day. In 1957, an eight-year-old in the area with his family ran around a corner ahead of them, and he was never seen again. In 1960, a six-year-old was with his YMCA group in the area, but got too tired, so the counselor told him to go back to camp, which was within eyesight, so the counselor watched him go back, but turned away right before he got there. Kid never made it back to camp and was never seen again. One person even claims to have seen the Jersey Devil in this area, but he left because he felt LA's tuna melts weren't up to par. <laughs> but it wasn't all redheads and masturbation tablets for Parsons. What? Towards the end of World War II, the military took control of his program and eventually split it into two agencies, Aerojet and JPL. Parsons, however, was split into your and fired, but he had already spent most of his savings on orgies, so he had to sell the parsonage and downsize. Luckily, he had the one guy you want in your corner when you're vulnerable, L. Ron Hubbard, who convinced Parsons to give him all the money he had so that he could go to Florida to get some boats and then sail them back to L.A. to sell for profit. Hubbard took his money, went to Florida, and instead of sailing back to L.A., partied on the boats with all of his money. Parsons was furious and cursed Hubbard, which led to his boat getting caught in a storm that forced them to dock where he was promptly arrested. Hubbard, in retaliation, prophesied that Parsons would die a fiery death and would justify his exploits with him as a top-secret naval mission to bring down the OTO. Without a job, Parsons did pyrotechnics for movies and repaired washing machines, which is like having Mozart tuning your piano. <laughs> he got a job at Hughes Aerospace but sold classified... <laughs> Don't mind that. That's our uh, pacemakers. Uh, he got a job at Hughes Aerospace but sold classified documents to Israel, which made Hughes so furious that he rolled up his fingernails and went straight to the FBI, who launched an investigation on Parsons and found that he had communist leanings and was potentially bisexual. So they stripped him of his security clearances and he couldn't work. With nowhere else to turn, he decided to form his own religion and took the Oath of the Abyss and adopted the new name Balerian Armelus Al-Dajjal Antichrist, which I think is Dutch. But the Scarlet Woman convinced him to move to Mexico, but before they were set to leave, Parsons went back into his home lab. The reason isn't clear. It was either to make one last explosion for a movie to get some cash for the trip, or to prepare a new explosive to sell to Mexico that he believed would be more powerful than anything yet invented, or to conjure a fire demon, or to create a homunculus. So whichever makes the most sense, that's what he was doing. Whatever it was, June 17th, 1952, an explosion was heard in his home, if we could go to the next picture. 
after. That was the aftermath. Uh, that chair was fine, though. <laughs> when police showed up, it looked like that, and Parsons was found half his face ripped off, yeah, his face. right arm. Yeah, he, this is the Batman. I told you, the Suicide, <laughs> suicide Squad. squad. <laughs> Half his face was ripped off, his right arm was missing, both legs were broken, and supposedly he was surrounded by a pentagram. Wow. He was still alive and able to say, I wasn't done, before being taken to the hospital and dying within an hour. Now I'm done. <laughs> and now. <laughs> but his death didn't quite add up. To start, when he blew up, he had been mixing chemicals in a tin can, which was suspiciously unsafe for the founder of modern rocket science to be doing. Next, they found a syringe filled with morphine. Again, he, maybe he was fighting the plague in the wreckage. And then the way it looked, the explosion had to have come from beneath the floorboards. Wow. So some suspect that the government did it to keep his expertise out of the hands of foreign governments. Some think it was Howard Hughes, who was still upset with him. Others think it was a former LAPD captain who Parsons had helped put in jail as a forensics expert for this guy's attempt to kill another LAPD officer with a car bomb, and this guy had just been paroled at the time of Parsons' death. Luckily for us, we were able to uncover, just for this show, a long-lost recording of Parsons' last moments, where he was able to explain just what happened in the laboratory that night. Could we play the final recording? That's our show. Thank you, everybody, for Thank coming you. out tonight. So we'd like to give a special thank you to Paul Stein for setting this whole thing up. Everybody here at the Comedy Central stage for making this show possible. Chris Crittenden and Cindy Aravina for helping with the lobby music. Nick Gonzalez, Emily Gonzalez, and Melissa Johnson for helping out with our intro. Brian Cox and Alberto Sistos for the Hollywood video. Francis Rosenberg and Apollo the Dog for running crowd control. <laughs> Nadav Fleischer for being Jack Parsons. Woo! All of you for coming out. Thank you so much. That's been yet another episode of LA Meekly. Grateful there isn't a World Series game tonight since 2013. Happy Halloween. Thank you, everybody. We're running away. <laughs> All right, uh, this dedication comes from the lady in black to Rudolph. She says, we have a special romance, and I'd like to sink my teeth into you when I get home tonight. <laughs> Ooh. Here's uh, I Only Have Eyes for You by Spike Jones. <laughs> This next dedication comes from Cecil Hodel to his guests. He wants to remind them about the party and to come out and socialize. Here's Grim Grinning Ghosts from The Haunted Mansion Ride. This dedication comes from Mary to the other ladies of the evening. 
Mary warns they not be fooled by Jack the Rider. Here's Jack the Ripper by Screaming Lord Such. Streets of London late at night With a little black bag that's oh so tight He's got a big black cloak hanging down his back This next dedication comes from Charlene Brown to Snoopy. She says, I can't stay mad at you. You've leapt and glided and slided into my heart. You're out of the doghouse tonight, baby. Here's The Blob by The Five Blobs. Our next dedication comes from Chaz Manson to his family. He wants to remind them to helter-skelter and go out dressed to kill tonight. Here's Monster Movie Ball by Spike Jones. Last Wednesday night I got a telephone call They were having a monster movie ball Boy said, man, if you're feeling brave, hurry on now to the coconut grape. Twelve o'clock, we're all gonna rock at the monster movie This dedication comes from Mary, again to the ladies of the evening. She says, beware Jack the Rider, do not trust him. Well, this sounds serious. I gotta say, Jack, cut it out. Here's The Wobbling Goblin by Rosemary Clooney. There once was a sad little goblin Who had a broken broom When he went anywhere it would wobble in the air And his heart would fill with gloom He tried so hard to fix it every night This next dedication comes from Jack the Writer to Mary. He says, Nothing personal, sweetie. I just want to kill and maim. Yikes, Jack. I'd prefer if you don't listen to my program. But uh, here's I Want to Be a Monster by Lonesome Wyatt and the Holy Spooks. This dedication comes from Cat to Billy Harriman. Cat says, Shoo me away all you want, but I'll be here when the morning comes. 
Here's Haunted House by Jumpin' Gene Simmons. I just moved in my new house today. Moving was hard, but I got squared away. Bell started ringing and changed right loud. I knew I'd moved in a haunted house. Still, I made up in my mind to stay. Nothing was gonna drive me away. Our next dedication comes from F. Scott to Sheila. He says, Huddy. I'm sorry for being a zazzled zombie last night. Please forgive me. Here's I Walked with a Zombie by Rocky Erickson and the Aliens. Final dedication of the night comes from Asakis to the jury. He says, Sister Amy is not a miracle woman. She travels like a lightning streak and she strikes from town to town. Here's The Devil Ain't Lazy by Pokey Lafarge. Devil ain't lazy, no sirree. Lacks 